the Republicans to wake up. Is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. I want to thank listeners who support this program, including Patricia Smith, Joan Falber, and Sherry Willoughby. They're all voluntary subscribers to this program. It's distributed free. But if you're in a position to support us, just click on my website at PeterBCollins.com. There's a tab that says You Can Help, and you can take out your voluntary subscription for as little as $5 a month. And this month, I'm asking your help to double our listenership. Tell a friend, will you? When you finish listening to this podcast, send an email to one or 20 friends with the link and tell them why you think they ought to listen. I'd appreciate it. Coming up in this program in our second segment, I recently caught up with Bill Clinton's Secretary of Defense, Dr. Bill Perry, and he is on a quest to rid the world of nuclear weapons. Also, Gary Chu is going to preview this weekend's Oscar Awards, the Academy Awards. But first, Dr. Justin Frank returns to our program. He is a psychiatrist in the Washington, D.C. area, and we caught up with him a few years ago when he published the book Bush on the Couch. And I was recently reminded of his work when we interviewed Sasha Abramsky and his book called Inside Obama's Brain. And Abramsky is not a psychiatrist or an analyst of any kind. He's a journalist who built his profile of Obama by interviewing many people who knew him uh, but didn't actually talk to Obama himself. Uh, He told a cute story that uh, he sent a request to the White House, and uh, there was a response, but it was to his young daughter (laughs) and not to him. And Dr. Frank tells me he is working on a sequel called Obama on the Couch. Welcome back to our program, Doctor. Thank you. It's good to be back. Now, tell me, tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing uh, relative to President Obama, and if you find this actually more challenging than the work you did uh, on George W. Bush. Well, I'm doing work in the same way as I did with President Bush, namely, uh, it's something called applied psychoanalysis, which is the application of psychoanalytic principles particularly that there are patterns of human behavior, uh, that there is an unconscious uh, that drives some of these patterns, that there is uh, people are driven by both their drives and needs, but also by anxieties and trying to defend themselves against their anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, I do this by really examining what people have written about them, what they have written about themselves, uh, looking at press conferences, speeches, etc., and their behavior in office. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did with Bush, and I'm doing that again with uh, 
President Obama, and it's a very interesting uh, challenge because, first of all, he's written two large and really well-written autobiographical books, Mm -hmm. um, Dreams from My Father and um, uh, The Audacity of Hope. Correct. Um, And it's a much more difficult task, partly because he's uh, so smart, hard to pin down, and also he's not just as simple as George Bush was. Indeed. Is. And so I was feeling that the, the, the challenge for me is how to examine and even criticize someone who I think is likable, thoughtful, down-to-earth, someone who's really good in lots of ways. Um, so then how does one deal with that? And I think it's important to name our experience and try to think about President Obama in terms of that even people who are extremely intelligent and even self-aware, like you and I, Peter, um, are uh, have blind spots, and mm-hmm. so does President Obama. So the issue is really to find out what those emotional blind spots might be and uh, where they come from. And this book is much more in the tradition of positive aspects of psychoanalysis, namely that that the purpose of analysis is to help people and to uh, create more understanding. So I was hoping that um, some of his supporters and some of his disaffected supporters will maybe lend their support to him in some ways. I mean, I don't think it's going to be a political book in that way, but mm-hmm. but I do think that when people understand what is going on, um, they might see some of the blocks that exist inside of him. Now, let me um, use... Uh, it's a long answer to your question. It's a good one. Uh, let, let me use the uh, the centerpiece of the first year of the Obama administration as a jumping off point here, and that is the uh, health care uh, issues, which I believe are narrowed down to health insurance reform. And right. I'm one of those people who is greatly disappointed because um, I feel that the president uh, declined to engage directly uh, by really pronouncing his own bill, or at least uh, sharply defining the elements of a, of a bill that he was looking for. Uh, I feel that uh, a, a guy who ran one of the most impressive political campaigns in 2008 uh, declined sharply in his political acuity uh, in 2009, and that they seriously dropped the ball. And in discussing this, I want to be clear that uh, President Obama is not isolated. He has a whole team of people, and uh, some people blame Rahm Emanuel for things they don't like. Others will blame Hillary Clinton for foreign policy issues they don't like. And so I I just want to acknowledge that by the very nature of this, we're oversimplifying uh, some complex and uh, uh, detailed issues. Uh, But fundamentally, I feel that he misread the opportunity here and he came off the campaign with a clear mandate to reform health care, not just health insurance. And he very early on uh, dismissed the possibility of a single-payer or Medicare-for-all uh, position. And then he allowed the Congress to meander through uh, an arduous process that alienated a lot of uh, the American people because it was boring and because there was a lot of political infighting. And then uh, the August recess uh, came with no defined bill, and it became a big punching bag for the opponents driven by some very moneyed corporate interests. And so uh, as we speak today, which is uh, the 3rd of March, the president has finally kind of thrown down the gauntlet 
And he gave a powerful uh, short speech uh, earlier today in which he said he's now prepared to pass uh, the bill, what's left of it, uh, with only Democratic votes. And so I see that he's finally asserting the, the leadership that many of us desired. And one of the blind spots that uh, I have seen is this desire for bipartisanship. And it was clear to many of us from the day of the inauguration that Republicans would not uh, uh, embrace the kind of comity, that's not comedy, comity, that Obama has articulated that uh, is his goal. And I've just given you a long question, and I'm going to sit back here and let you talk for a couple of minutes. Uh, What do you think about what I've described here and about the role the president has or hasn't played in this centerpiece uh, of his uh, uh, early administration uh, activities? Well, there's some certain kinds of ironies that are involved here. First of all, and they're usually, uh, and I think that they're uh, problematic for people who disagree with him, and I happen to be one also. I'm much more in your camp about that politically. Mm -hmm. Um, But the irony uh, for me is that I think his goal was never clearly stated when he was running for president because he didn't define exactly what he meant by change. And when he talked about change we can count on, I think that his goal was exactly what you said at the end of your question, which was about to find some common ground between Republicans and Democrats. That his goal is for some kind of unity as Americans. His goal is less about health care than it is about people finding common ground. And this is a very important goal of anyone who's a community organizer, because that's how they get things done. They find out what the community needs. The problem is that, of course, he's misunderstanding, as you say, the Republicans who really don't have a sense of community and certainly not a sense of obligation or responsibility towards people who are less fortunate or who need health care or a public option. And they've fought everything from Medicaid, you know, all the way through the history of, uh, of this country, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're fighting more and more now. But I think that the goal he has of change is that. And I think that people have misread his goal. And so the question is, what is that goal about and where does that come from? Well, I think that that comes from somewhere very deep in his uh, psyche and also comes from uh, his experiences growing up, namely that he would like to, and growing up in Hawaii, for people of different beliefs and different races and different backgrounds ethnically, to find a way to find what they have in common and to get along in terms of mutual respect. So his goal is very different. And he came to a fractious Congress and and a group of Republicans who will vote no no matter what. Um... And I think that he wanted to try it his way for a year. And the problem is he disaffected, lost a lot of us along the way in terms of our being disaffected. There are several different sources of his reasons for this. One is that his father abandoned him. This is in no order of uh, you know how I'm going to do it exactly in the book, but his father mm-hmm. abandoned him when he was two. Yeah. He was uh, of mixed race, and his mother spent a great deal of time um, uh, building up myths about his father and what a great person. She did not really want him 
to just be bitter and angry towards his father. So there was this effort in a, in a somewhat positive way to not express her own bitterness and hurt, whatever that was, but to actually make sure that um, Obama's father stayed alive in his mind. And I think that that involves, a, that leads to a push towards integration from a broken family. It leads to a push towards a wish for people to get along and be able to get together. The problem is that his mother, if she's also an identification figure, was a great accommodator. She accommodated people, and she actually, although she was independent in lots of ways, by accommodating the father and getting hooked up to these two men who were extremely, uh, her second husband, uh, uh, Lolo, they're extremely um, uh, self-involved, self-directed, narcissistic men who really don't care that much about other people, at least as I could tell it. Although Lola was somewhat attached to Barack when he was a boy, Barry. Mm -hmm. but, but the point I'm trying to make is that he learned about accommodation, and he learned about a wish for people to get along and a wish to integrate a broken family. He was also brought up, by virtue of being a broken family, in a fatherless family. Mm -hmm. So he didn't really learn certain kinds of things that sons do with fathers and daughters, too, where there's a lawgiver or butting your head against somebody, because his mother had to be both people in a way. Mm -hmm. And uh, the last two Democratic presidents, the one before Obama, also were fatherless uh, in fatherless households, Bill Clinton. And, uh, and they had some similar problems in dealing with Republicans. They really, shall we say, went to bed with them very quickly and tried to become friends with them. Um, and much to both of their detriment, uh, Clinton's and then Obama's. But I think that the drive for Obama is even more profound because he's never even been a chief executive of any organization. The way Clinton was at least a governor for years, um, he has never had to have the buck stop there ever. Mm -hmm. And he's never had and a and a, and a model of anyone. So because his his model his model was always about getting along. Uh, finding uh, as a, a finding a balance. I mean, what made him so beloved at Harvard was uh, law school was that he was always able to see different sides and draw people out and get people to think. And because he's so uh, highly intelligent, um, he was able to do this. But the blind spot then is his desire for bipartisanship, because the blind spot is that he never actually did get angry at his father. And he was interviewed by the Washington Post reporter right before, I can't even remember when it was now, it's in my notes somewhere, but he was interviewed, and the reporter asked him if he was angry at his father for abandoning the family. He says, no, I didn't know him well enough to be angry at him. I mean, why do you have to know somebody well to be angry at them? You know, they left your family um, when you're two. I would think that would make most people angry. Yeah. So not him. So I think that he has dealt with this problem of trying to assume that his father is not all bad or destructive, and probably he isn't or wasn't. But um, I think he has those same assumptions that he's displaced onto some of these Republicans who are uh, destructive, have abandoned uh, the Constitution, if you will, have done all kinds of very destructive things. So I think. But that but he knows them well enough to be angry at them. Well, I, I he mean, knows they, them they, well enough to be angry at them. They and have now repeatedly he's down the gauntlet, but he gave them a long chance, and so that's from a psychological point of view, that's his blind spot. However, politically, I wonder if his blind spot is so marked 
that he actually is in the pockets of the insurance company, that he really does think that uh, people of money and power know best. And um, that, uh, that I, I mean, I do worry about that. So, I mean, I'm looking at blind spots, but, you know, there's a fantasy that just because a person is competent and smart, they, that I make assumptions about their political views. And the fact is he voted against FISA, in when he was senator, and he mm-hmm. said he would, I mean, voted for FISA, and he never, and he said uh, that he would never do that. Yeah. So, in a way, he's already, and he's caved on a lot of different things, um, not just the health care, the centerpiece, but he's caved on lots of things. And um, when I discuss this with people who are very much in love with him and think he's the best thing ever, and in some ways he is, um, we've never had a president this, you know, uh, good a speaker or this kind of comprehensive in, uh, knowledge, uh, they get very mad at me mm-hmm. because they feel that I'm forgetting all the good things he's done, and I'm not. But the problem is that we've grown up now in the last eight years, those of us who've you know really spent a lot of time with George Bush, we've grown up in a world, uh, pardon my uh, you know imagery, but a world of black and white. Mm-hmm. And it's always been black or white since Bush was there. It was you're with us or against us, and it was a very simplistic world. And so Obama is going against that, and his goal of change and his goal of bipartisanship is trying to break through simplicity on the Republican side of the aisle. And he kept hoping he was going to do it. Now, uh, I... And he hasn't been able to. Uh, doctor, I, I felt that um, I had appropriate expectations. Yes. Because um, I was impressed the very first time I saw Barack Obama speak. Uh, he was a senator at the time. This was three years ago. And I immediately saw that he created uh, a canvas or a screen that people could project uh, their own aspirations on. And I found yes. that very clever and uh, politically uh, very appealing because it, it enabled him to use these broad themes of change and hope to attract a, a broad range of people in a, in a fractured uh, political uh, climate. And at the same time, uh, one wonders how conniving he is. That, uh, you know, was he aware of the way he was herding people along? And he certainly on the campaign trail met thousands, if not tens of thousands of people who would blurt out, what their own aspirations and expectations were. So as he took the office, uh, I did not expect a, a flaming liberal, uh, a far-left progressive, uh, but I did have limited expectations of a return to constitutional rule and uh, a reasonable process of the Democrats asserting power after being in the wilderness uh, for most of the, the preceding eight years. And what I've seen uh, disappoints me greatly and uh, uh, causes me to review my own expectations uh, because I thought I was cynical enough to protect myself uh, from the kind of letdown that that many people are feeling on a range of issues. But I want to focus on the extent to which you think he was conscious of the way he was manipulating the electorate um, in order to win the office. Yes, I think he was conscious of it. I think he really does is a brilliant campaigner and brilliant at winning things. Um, he does it completely different from the way Bush did with the full court press and all of the you know name calling and everything. And Bush barely won, 
Obama won by, and he didn't even win, according to some people, including me. Mm-hmm. But Obama won by a landslide. And part of it was because of Bush and because of how screwed up he made the country. But part of it was because Obama really is a brilliant campaigner and a brilliant organizer as a community organizer. And one of the things that a community organizer does is he makes all members of the community feel listened to. And that's a conscious tactic. Mm-hmm. He makes everybody feel listened to and understood. And he learned how to do that because that's what his mother did with him. She spent a lot of time in his early years listening to him and talking with him both. And I think it gave him a real uh, sense of uh, force. And then he writes about it in Dreams from My Father. He writes about the first time he spoke in public when he was, I don't remember, 15 or something, or 14, I can't remember it Mm -hmm. exactly. But he writes about how shocked he was at the rapt attention with which he held people uh, in the audience, and that he was actually surprised at his power and pleased with it. So he's aware of it. He was aware of it at an early age, that he has this gift and this ability. So I do think it was manipulated and manipulative and planned, and I think that he showed his hand very clearly um, in the uh, health care forum uh, in his very clever and somewhat nasty but satisfying put-down of John McCain mm-hmm. when he said that was the election, the election's over. Yeah. I think he was talking about himself, not just to shut up McCain. He was also telling people who were disappointed in him to also pipe down. It's over. Now he's dealing with the reality of life. And the reality of life is that there's a lot of people who are more powerful than he is in his mind. He doesn't understand that his supporters and the people who voted for him are far more powerful than he thinks and could be galvanized and used, but I don't think he has that sensibility. And I think that he has gone out of his way to be a brilliant orator, but to never talk like Reverend Wright, who would work uh, audiences up into a frenzy of anger and outrage, often for very good causes. And I think that he has been um, antipathetical to uh, to Reverend Wright, because of that, he was influenced by him and by his uh, wishing to do good and make change in Chicago. But he was also, I think, went out of his way to not use that kind of rhetoric and to not talk like that. I think he had a lot of pressure inside. What happens if you're a black man who's half white, who is smarter than most everybody else, and you, you know, what are you going to do? It's not an easy uh, road to hoe, but at the same time, he really got elected and had a huge mandate behind him. And I don't, and I think that's the part that troubles me. That I don't think he got it because he's so focused on having people get along and on healing a divide. Mm -hmm. He kept talking about how the last time America was united was the day after 9-11. I mean, give me a break. If you're attacked by a foreign thing, everybody's going to be united. But that doesn't mean we're united in in fundamentals. We were just united as Americans and in our horror at what had happened. But we were fractious six months earlier. Look at all the banging on the doors of, you know, the Florida vote counters. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Dr. Frank, uh, you just touched on racial identity. And yeah. one of the things that struck me uh, was uh, I, I watched every minute of his Philadelphia speech uh, yes. re- in response to uh, the Reverend Wright provocation and the way Fox News and then the other media outlets just uh, played those clips to death. And uh, uh, this term's not politically correct, but it was a Mau Mau uh, operation. Yes. And uh, then I was in the stadium with uh, a few other people in Denver uh, on the night that he gave his uh, acceptance speech of the Democratic nomination. And it was the 40th anniversary of Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. And he could not bring himself, and I, I, I still puzzle over this, and I've asked many people, uh, including African Americans, to comment on it, and most people don't, don't really see much there. But he made passing references to the preacher, and he paraphrased uh, some of Dr. F- Dr. King's very famous lines. But throughout the campaign, he was ducking the legacy of uh, those who led the, tr- the, the fight for integration, and in particular, Dr. King, who I believe is the safest uh, African-American historical leader to look to. Certainly, he didn't want to come off as Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton, and I understand that. But why the allergy to Dr. King? Do you have any thoughts? Yes, I do, actually. Dr. King put his... First of all, Dr. King put his money where his mouth was. He actually stood up. And I think that Obama is not ready to stand up for what he believes in. And I think it's intimidating. Uh, And he may feel that he would be hiding behind Dr. King's skirts, which I think he would have been, because he's not as strong as Dr. King was, and he can't stand up the way Dr. King did. That's the first thing. The second thing is, well, Dr. King might be safer now to cite than, than being like Al Sharpton or Jesse Jackson. Uh, Dr. King actually was assassinated, and those two men are still alive. So uh, there's a lot of hatred that got stirred up by Dr. King. Third thing was that Dr. King, um, exactly one year before his assassination on April 4th, mm-hmm. um, in 1967, gave a speech uh, about why he suddenly, finally, had decided to come out against the Vietnam War. Right, the Riverside Church. And that speech is one of the greatest speeches, I think, ever given anywhere. Mm -hmm. And in that speech, um, as best I can remember it, and I don't remember it uh, as well as I'd like to, he made the most amazing statement, which was that if he were president and the Russians had pushed a button sending nuclear weapons our way, if there were 200 missiles, I don't remember the number he used, he would not retaliate, because why wipe out the entire world as opposed to just half of the world? Something like that. Mm -hmm. It was an amazing statement about why nonviolence is important in terms of the ultimate destructiveness. Obama can't get near that stuff. So I think that he stayed away from Dr. King for a variety of reasons, one of which is that he's not as strong as Dr. King, and he does, and he wants to be his own man. Dr. King is the opposite of his father. Dr. King was a man who did put his money where his mouth was, as I said, and did not just uh, live a puffed-up life full of uh, rhetoric with nothing there. And Obama's father lived a life that was full of rhetoric with not much there. Um, and I really think that he never had that kind of experience of having someone to identify with, except in literature, um, 
that would make him feel stronger. And so he was drawn to very self-determined men, but not people who stood up to adversity. Uh, I really think that it was uh, an impossible figure for him with whom he could identify. But when you could see the picture at the election of Jesse Jackson crying, he was clearly identified with the struggle of all this time and was feeling thrilled about it, as a lot of us were. And he was clearly connected to Dr. King, whereas I just don't think Obama was ever. Mm-hmm. The last area that, that I... I don't know if that answers your question. No, you, I, those are very interesting remarks. I appreciate it. A lot of people just uh, shy away from it because no. they think it's uh, too sensitive to talk about. No, it's too important not to talk about. I think that's what I, why I'm writing this book. These the, issues are too important not to talk about. The, the last area that I'd like to touch on with you today uh, involves his decision to escalate the U.S. military presence in Afghanistan. And uh, over the course of the, the period before he started his deliberations and then the very public uh, review of uh, General McChrystal's uh, request for troops, uh, he articulated all of the objections that uh, one could make uh, intelligently. Not, yep. not necessarily all in the same uh, venue at the same time, but if you couple together some of the interviews and some of the speeches he gave, he acknowledged that nobody's ever successfully occupied Afghanistan, that there is a corrupt central government there that can't be, uh, uh, we, we don't really have much hope to transfer power to them, that it's a, a, a you know, series of uh, warlord fiefdoms that uh, have proved uh, to be impenetrable uh, over the years and that uh, al-Qaeda is no longer there, that the, the original mission that was stated to uh, insert American troops there and to launch an assault on Afghanistan is no longer the case. And so uh, I do realize that during the campaign, he, he played a yin and yang where he said Iraq was the wrong war and that Afghanistan for him was the right war. And so I don't feel misled, but I no. feel disappointed that uh, given what he was able to articulate about the pitfalls of remaining in Afghanistan, that he conducted this uh, careful and calculated public review uh, and did take only one option off the table, which was withdrawal, (laughs) and then announced that uh, we're going to put more troops in there, and I'm not the only American who thinks that this is a futile exercise and that uh, we'll simply see a greater loss of American life and that whenever we leave Afghanistan, that it will implode and that, uh, you know, local insurgents and or the Taliban will uh, once again assume control. And so I I find it confounding that a man of such intellect who, as I said, was able to articulate the critical points uh, that uh, spoke against his ultimate decision uh, was able to make that West Point speech on uh, December 1st last year where he cited 9-11, he conflated uh, al-Qaeda and other insurgent groups uh, with the Taliban, and I felt that he presented a very weak and misleading case to buttress uh, his ultimate decision. Well, I actually agree with you. I would say, uh, how can you agree with another person 100%? I agree (laughs) with you 99%. I mean, I really do. I think you're absolutely, I feel the same way you do. I think that what he does, and this is where he is uh, slick, he really is able to see all sides. And that's why we get lulled into thinking that he actually is 
balanced. In other words, he his we confuse perspicacity with virtue. And we confuse an amazing intellect of calm, deliberate, thoughtful behavior as if he would be liberal in the best sense of the word. And I think that's a confusion that he may willfully play on and understand, but that he really is a person who, if you took his picture, and there are wonderful pictures of him, I feel like sometimes the way Mort Saul described going to a Billy Graham rally in uh, Shea Stadium in the 60s, when he said he took two rolls of film and they neg- went home and developed them and the negatives were blank mm-hmm. and everybody laughed in the audience. And that's, I feel that way at times about President Obama. It's just what you were saying about the projection screen earlier and the canvas that painted. So when he paints all of these things, we confuse his ability to do that and get lulled into things with the fact that actually he has a very clear point of view and he's letting us know that he really understands why we don't want to go there and why we don't want to go into Afghanistan. And he really understands it in a much more intellectual way than Bill Clinton, who would say, I feel your pain. He would just say, I really understand the objections and I can really see them. And this is what, and, and then he, it's like we're being co-opted into something. It's very brilliant. I think that he always wanted to go into Afghanistan, and he said as much in the campaign. In fact, McCain made him sound, made, I mean, he made McCain in the second debate, I think, sound more conservative or uh, more uh, cautious than he was with his talk about Pakistan and everything. Mm-hmm. He sent in the drones immediately to Pakistan. I mean, it escalated that. Mm-hmm. This guy is not who people think he is. And I don't know what to do about that because he really has lots of great qualities, but he is also, um, I mean, I don't know what motivates the Afghanistan thing. The issue is, for me, mm-hmm. for instance, is it motivated by the fact that Democrats always are uh, uh, behind the eight ball in terms of being tough on uh, defense and, you know, only Nixon could go to China. Can you imagine a Democrat recognizing China? They would have been, uh, you know, put in jail for being un-American. Mm-hmm. Nixon could go. So I think that that uh, he's in, he's aware of that part of our history. So I don't know the why he would do this. I really don't know unless he does have real information from the CIA that we don't know about, where these people really are there. And certainly he has apparently captured. We've captured a few people recently, many more than was ever captured in under Bush. So maybe. It's right, but clearly it's not right from my point of view, and to sacrifice more lives makes no sense. Well, I have one of these uh, colorful stickers from the presidential campaign with that uh, retouched photo of Obama and the word hope under it. Yes. And I'm planning to change the H to an N. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have one on my bathroom I have a big bar of soap, and it says, The Audacity of Soap. (laughs) And it's got a picture of him on a bar of soap. (laughs) So I totally understand where you're coming from. Dr. Frank, very uh, disturbing. what's what's your progress on the book Obama on the Couch, and uh, can we nudge you into giving a date when it might be published? Well, it'll be published early, I hope, early next year. But right now I'm in the process of 
finishing up a very concrete, specific proposal with chapters and uh, topics. You know, I, I, everything from uh, uh, you know all kinds of different possibilities that I'm just narrowing down. Even things like uh, uh, the psychology of tea uh, as a chapter about the Tea Party, but mm-hmm. uh, lots of different things. Um, uh, the accommodator in chief, things like that. So. Yeah. There's lots of things. In fact, at one point, what you said uh, earlier when you were discussing your first impression of him when he gave that great speech. Oh, by the way, I thought the speech on race was terrific. Yeah, yeah, it was. I thought it was absolutely terrific. And I felt that he raised the level of psychological functioning of a lot of people who watched that speech. And I thought even some of the anchors on TV afterwards, I mean, not Fox News, they could never have anything raised, but... But other people were talking about their own grandparents and talking about how they had racist grandparents, too, who they loved, and they were very conflicted about it. They realized that you could love someone and still be furious at what they think and do. And I thought that was really um, a very effective speech. I mean, it was terrific. Yes, it was. I, uh, I did watch it on Fox, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, so you got lots of uh, interruptions, probably. Well, I was in a hotel room, and I, I, that was the only network that was carrying it live. So, Well, <laughs> well Doctor... He's great. And the last thing is that because of what you said, though, I was going to call the book, although I don't think I will, My President Myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for your time today. Send me a bill, okay? And I'll, okay, I'll, have, my ins- I'll have my insurance company uh, get back to you on that. I really love talking to you. You are great. So thank you. Dr. Justin Frank, Bush on the couch and the forthcoming Obama on the couch. Thank you, sir. Thank you. On March 1st, I attended an event in San Francisco hosted by the Plowshares Fund and its president, Joe Cirincione. They're committed to ridding the world of nuclear weapons. Admittedly, a lofty goal. But they have an interesting quartet of former of government officials who support their goal. The two speakers at the event were Dr. Bill Perry, who was Bill Clinton's Secretary of Defense from 94 to 98, and former Reagan Secretary of State George Shultz. The other two parties are Sam Nunn and Henry Kissinger. Kissinger in particular gives me great pause. event, they previewed a new documentary about the nuclear tipping point. And Joe Cirincione, who's been on our program many times, is very earnest in his belief that this is a window of opportunity. Now, as I mentioned, I'm not very comfortable with Henry Kissinger because he, of course, was the architect of many of the atrocities in Vietnam. And he continues to advise the administrations, Obama and Bush about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. That said, the only good thing that I can say about Henry Kissinger is that we now know that he stopped Richard Nixon from using nuclear weapons in Vietnam. And so maybe he's looking for redemption late in life.
I'm not so sure. But here's a brief conversation I had during the cocktail reception with Dr. Bill Perry. Dr. Bill Perry, who is Secretary of Defense in the Clinton administration. Nice to see you, sir. Thank you. There's all this talk about a nuclear arms race in the Middle East if Iran develops a nuclear weapon. Do you think that focus is overblown or misplaced? I do not think it's overblown. I think if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, there'll be a very high probability of a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. Don't we already have one with Israel and Pakistan and a little further away, India, with nuclear weapons? Of course, yeah. If we think that's bad, where do we see five more? So it really seems bad. And do you support a Bush-era doctrine of preemptive action? No. I appreciate the clarity on that. What are our options? Because sanctions don't seem to have much impact on the clerical rulers in Iran. We haven't, we haven't exhausted the sanctions yet. Although I would say that for success in the sanctions, we have to get strong support from Russia and China, which has been lacking so far. If we can get that strong support, I do believe the sanctions would be effective. Failing that, I think we have to consider military action. That would not be nuclear action, though. I do, not, I do not like to contemplate military action against Iran, but a conventional military strike might be the last resort. And should the U.S. engage in that, or Israel? If it's going to be done, I don't think we should hide behind Israel. Because even if Israel does it, we will get the blame for it anyway. And our forces are much more capable of, of doing the job than Israel's are. We didn't do so well, though, when uh, we went into Iran when the hostages were there. We will do well if we win. The issue is not whether we can do the job effectively. The issue, and it's a very serious issue, are all the unintended consequences of a strike. That's why I think the military option is, is the last, only the last option, and we should completely exhaust all diplomatic options before we consider that. Now, I don't consider this likely, but would it help if Israel renounced a first strike uh, capability or intention? I think what would help is if we could negotiate a nuclear-free zone in the Middle East. And before Israel would consider that, seriously, they would have to have many guarantees. Some of the guarantees would have to come from the United States. Others would have to come from some of the uh, Arab countries in the region. I don't mean to suggest that would be easy to negotiate, but I think that is the most imp imp fundamentally significant diplomatic option that could be pursued. Have we not had a plan on the table from Saudi Arabia for a nuclear-free zone for a number of years now? We need, we need more than Saudi Arabia involved for a nuclear-free zone to be effective in the Middle East. It has to involve all of the Arab countries and Iran. And it has to, I think even with all of that, it's going to require the United States to be willing to give security guarantees, credible security guarantees to Israel. Those are the minimum requirements, I think, for having Israel being willing to give up its nuclear weapons. But Israel doesn't even officially acknowledge they have them. Isn't that a barrier? That barrier could be overcome if we could, if we could deal with these other issues, I think. 
And how do you see the posture of the Obama administration in contrast to the George W. Bush administration toward Iran and, and the nuclear threat? Well, the, the big difference so far is that the Obama administration has been willing to talk to Iran. But ironically, by the time the United States is willing to talk to them, uh, Iran is now not willing to talk back. Uh, I believe had we engaged in, in the real diplomacy with Iran three or four years ago, we might have been able to nip this in the bud. But that's just speculation on my part, and we cannot relive history. At this stage, we have to deal with the fact that Iran is, to this point at least, not willing to engage in, in serious diplomacy. Do you think that one lingering issue from the Bush era is that they financed publicly uh, efforts to destabilize the, we called it, they called it a regime, uh, in Tehran? And do you think that the Obama administration would, would be well served to uh, disassociate itself from that because of the internal turmoil that appears to be happening without our involvement? I would not want to take that option off the table if Iran is not being willing to deal diplomatically with us. Uh, that would be, uh, that option would probably be superior to a military strike option. But the best option of all is a diplomatic action, but it takes two to tango. So. And do you think with Ahmadinejad, the figurehead, and with uh, the Ayatollah, who's a pretty hardliner uh, on these issues, do you think that we need a shuffle there before we can make meaningful progress? I'm not sure that... Having a different president than Ahmadinejad is a fundamental change. The real problem, as I see it in Iran, is not the president, it's the, it's the Revolutionary Guard. As long as they are really the military security force in the country, uh, it's hard to imagine us moving forward in a constructive way. Now, Ahmadinejad is embracing them, and, is, and, and that's this problem and another president might not but uh, simply changing president I don't think will deal with that problem and that's his way of, of curtailing the control of the Revolutionary Guard. Do you believe the 2004 or 2005 um, national security um, report, I forget what they're called, the, the digest, uh, which stated that they weren't in pursuit of a weapon, was that inaccurate and have we been moving in the wrong direction as a result? I believe that Iran is in pursuit of a virtual nuclear capability, that is, getting to the stage where any time they decide to go, they could have a weapon within about six months. And I do not believe Israel will accept that position, and so that's a formula for disaster. If Iran continues to pursue moving in that direction, before they get to that point of no return, I think Israel will take some sort of a military action, and that will get put in a whole new ballgame. And one more thing, sir, if I could take you back to when you were at the Pentagon, what was the level of awareness of the AQCON network and the proliferation that they were undertaking with North Korea and Iran? And, um, that was not on the radar screen back in uh, the 90, early 90s. That was only in the later 90s that we began to appreciate how serious that problem was. All right, well, thank you very much for your time. It's a well. pleasure to meet you. My pleasure. All right, thank you, sir.
We continue on the Peter B. Collins Show, sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine, earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. Just click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com for a special introductory offer. And we'll be pouring some organic wines as we sit back with some friends to watch the Academy Awards coming up this weekend. And if you're listening after the fact, my apologies. That's how it works in the podcast world. Not everybody catches it right as it's released. And Gary Chu is our official film reviewer here on the Peter B. Collins Show. And like me, he has not seen all of the Oscar nominees, uh, partly because the Best Picture category was a surprise to me because I just took a look today, expanded uh, double this year to 10 nominees. And, uh, Gary, are there really 10 fabulous, great, excellent, top-notch films from the past year that are reflected in this list, or is this just showbiz? Well, I think uh, some of it's showbiz, Peter B. The, uh, they just went to, the, as you said, they just went to the 10 uh, movies this year, and they are The Hurt Locker, Up in the Air, A Serious Man, The Inglorious Bastards, Avatar, the Blind Side, uh, District 9, and Education, Precious and Up. Mm-hmm. Precious being one movie and Up being the other. And I haven't seen Avatar, Blind Side, District... Uh, no, yeah, I have seen District 9. I haven't seen Precious or Up. I have seen An Education, which is a pretty good movie, but I don't even think it ought to be on the list. But, you know, uh, uh, I think they're, they've obviously... Uh, Stack the deck a little bit so they can get more ticket sales out of some of the uh, secondary tier of the bottom ten, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, take them. I, I have the official Oscar list up here, so we'll start with uh, Avatar. And I still have my 3D glasses. And as a production piece, um, it's it's fascinating. I mean, I think that James Cameron did an excellent job of merging uh, animation with uh uh, what do we call it when you have humans in animation? Uh, animatronics or something like that. Uh, but I have to say that the story didn't hold my interest and that the film was too long. And uh, I ceased to be dazzled uh, after about maybe 40 minutes or so. And then it became a fairly predictable fable. Um, that said, uh, the, uh, the, the animated creatures really made more of an impact than the humans uh, in the film. And I guess in, the other thing was is, uh, I was much more conscious of the, uh, the animation than, uh, say, I was in the Lord of the Rings uh, series. And so I, I think this is a Hollywood favorite. Uh, it made a, a boatload of money and still is uh, rolling up the, the, the numbers. And so my guess is that uh, it's, it's going to be a, a favored one. Uh, but there is some good competition on the list. Now, The Blind Side, I haven't seen, and uh, I can't remember if you said you had or not. I have not seen it. Okay, so we'll leave that one out and uh, wish them well. Uh, District 9, uh, Kathy and I have been thinking about watching that on uh, a pay-per-view on demand, but haven't gotten around to it. You have seen it, and uh, what did you think, Gary? I... Uh... I hate to be so down in the mouth about this when I was wondering when I rented this DVD at Blockbuster or somewhere like that. You know, I saw it on the shelf. I brought it home, watched it, and about halfway through, I, I, I stopped watching it. Oh. I didn't. I just didn't like it. Huh. I didn't like the like what was going on. So I don't know the whole thing about the movie, but it did. It was 
where I didn't really didn't care for it. Okay. Well, Peter Jackson put uh, you know a whole lot into it, and I'm sure he's going to be disappointed that you didn't like it. Oh yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> now, an education. Um, I I know absolutely nothing about that film. Uh, that is uh, Peter Skarsgård, and the young lady who plays the, plays the lead in that film is also up for an Academy Award. And she is excellent in the film. Peter Skarsgård is, too. But it's really sort of a... Well, he plays a kind of a cad, and he takes advantage of this young girl, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's not a bad movie, but it's just kind of a, you know, like a, a six or seven movie on the scale, you know. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I just saw it on an off chance because I, I like Skarsgård, and, and I was hearing some good things about the gal, and I can't remember her name right now, but Carrie something. A very good, uh, very, very good job in the film, but it's not a great movie. Mm-hmm. I didn't see Precious or Up. I missed those. Mm-hmm. But I've seen the rest, and I've also got a list of other movies of last, of last year, which I really think are the best ones of the year. Oh, but, all right, we'll get to those in a minute. I think Carrie Mulligan is who you were looking for in, right, in Education. Mulligan. Uh huh. She's very good. Okay. Um, next up on the list here, The Hurt Locker, and you did a review for us uh, a few months back, and I know that you're in love with Catherine Bigelow, the the uh, director of that film. Yes, I am. I saw Catherine first of all on the, the Charlie uh, show on PBS. Charlie Rose. Uh huh. Yeah, Charlie Rose, and I was really impressed with her, her, her demeanor, her low keyedness, her. Uh, intellect, her lack of arrogance, all of those things really struck me. And then I saw the movie, and I just sort of got blown away by the movie. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, the, that's what seems to be the hassle coming up with the Oscars on Sunday, is that people are, some people are complaining about the Hurt Locker not uh, accurately depicting what soldiers are like in the military because of some of the attitudes of them. And that's sort of what they're coming back on uh, to try to hurt some of the voting with the Hurt Locker. So it's you know so there is a contention going on with Hurt Locker and Avatar, uh, which I think I've mentioned before, and you know too that Avatar was directed by uh, Catherine Bigelow's former husband, yeah. James Cameron. Right. Yeah. They're not married anymore. They probably and won't be sitting together either. They probably won't be, and also one of her producers won't be there either because they banned him from the Oscars because he wrote letters to some Academy members saying he wanted them to vote for their film instead of Locker, and he broke some sort of a policy rule, so hmm. he won't show up. His name is Nicolas Chartier. Uh-huh. He was also involved with a, a, an earlier winning Oscar film of Crash of about two or three years ago by sure. Paul Haggis, which yeah. was an excellent film. Yeah, I think well, The Hurt Locker is the best movie I've seen all year, and there have been some good ones this year, I think. I, I thought it was really good, and uh, as I've mentioned to you, I, in some ways, yearned for a political angle to it, an mm-hmm. anti-war message. But she stuck to a vision, I think, of a character sketch, character sketch of... Uh, of soldiers in combat, um, what is often called unit cohesion, particularly by those who oppose gays in the military. Um, mm-hmm. But it really did show um, the the interconnection of the soldiers. Uh, it kept you on the edge of your seat because you expected at any moment an IED could uh, go off, or uh, you know, a suicide. <clears throat> pardon me, a suicide bomber might appear. Um, so I, I think she captured. Um, a, a, a kind of moment there that was very powerful 
and I think that uh, it, it has broad appeal in that respect. You know, I, I do too, and uh, this argument that's coming up about some people saying that people really aren't depicted, depicted accurately, mm-hmm. some of the military, I think that's baloney, because I have, I have been in the Army, and I have seen people and characters like these in the film. By the way, the guy who has the lead in it is from Modesto, California, and he is also up for an Oscar for Best Actor in it. Jeremy Renner, I think, is his name. Yeah, and uh, I'd never seen him before, but I thought he was really strong. Excellent, excellent. Just really a good film. Mm-hmm. Up in the Air was a good movie with George Clooney. Good script, very good script. Did you see that? I did, and you know, I cringed. Uh, I, I thought there were some moments, and I thought once uh, the, uh, uh, I'll have to look up her name here, the the uh, female sidekick entered yeah. the picture. That, Sarah Formiga? Yeah, that, that it oh. got a little more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, certainly because of the economy and all the people who have been laid mm-hmm. off in a cold and cruel way, uh, th- there is some some connection there. But I, I just thought that, uh, you know, for the most part, it was, uh, was kind of cartoonish. And, uh, you know, after the fourth uh, uh, hotel room, <laughs> uh, I kind of got tired of the, the travel part. Um, so it, it was okay for me, but I came away feeling uh, that I could have spent my time better doing something else. Mm-hmm. And, and Clooney was good. Uh, you know, he's, he's good at what he does. But I, I thought in some ways he was playing George Clooney and not so much uh, really steeped in the character. Exactly. You're exactly right about that. I agree. A Single Man, which is not up for a motion, or rather an Oscar, although the lead actor is Peter Firth. A Single Man is an excellent film, I think. Another one that didn't get much uh, mention was the uh, uh, musical uh, Nine. I really thought that was, I'm not a musical type movie mm-hmm. guy, but this Nine is a good film. Is it? I didn't see it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Crazy Heart is a good movie with Jeff Bridges, who will probably get the Oscar for Best Actor. I did like Crazy Heart, and I, I in some ways, resisted it because, uh, you know, I thought it was kind of a, a rehash of... Uh, Tender uh, Mercies? Well, and, and Mickey Rourke's uh, boxer movie. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, but I, I thought that, uh, as a character, he, he really pulled it off. Mm-hmm. And I was pleased that it, it didn't have the happy ending that uh, one would expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, uh, I think it was a fairly realistic film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like Maggie Gyllenhaal. She is up for uh, a Best Supporting Actress in this, too. Uh, speaking of be- better Best Actresses, I would like to jump over and say very quickly, uh, even though I didn't see the blind side, I have a feeling that uh, the gal in the lead... Sandra Bullock? Sandra Bullock is going mm-hmm. to win the Oscar for Best Actress under that with that film. I just... And my bones are telling me that that's going to happen. I, I hope you're right, because I see her as um, um, overhyped. I, I think she's a competent actress, but mm-hmm. uh, I feel like she plays the same kind of parts most of the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I haven't seen The Blind Side, so I'll, I'll certainly give her the benefit of the doubt there. But she's up against Helen Mirren. I haven't seen The Last Station, but she is a classic, uh, you know, really great actress. Oh, and yeah. Meryl Streep in uh, Julie and Julia, I think, did an excellent job. I knew Julia Child, uh, interviewed her, and, and got to talk with her on several different occasions over the years. Uh, and I thought that she 
played uh, Julia Child without uh, becoming a total caricature. And Julia was easily caricatured because of her voice. And uh, remember the Saturday Night Live skits uh, that, sure. that sent her up in a, in a great way. So uh, to me, the, the weakness in uh, Julia and, Julie and Julia was the Julie part, uh, the blogger. I thought mm -hmm. that uh, more of her should have been left on the cutting room floor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think they wanted to balance it for demographics, you know, have, a, have the appeal of the older, uh, well-known PBS personalities and have some sort of attraction for younger people with the Amy uh, Adams character. Right. Yeah. But I, I, I did. I thought the movie was really a good movie, and Streep is never bad. She's always just great. But uh, you know, it's, it's. I mean, she's been doing it so well for so long. You know, I'm sort of hoping that Maggie Gyllenhaal will win. I'm not particularly pulling for Sandra Bullock in the Blind Side. It's just that I'm feeling that the promotion and vibes are saying that she's going to be the winner. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. I hear that's you. What I'm, that's what I'm feeling because she is. She did a great job in the old movie uh, Crash, which uh, you know won the Oscar about two or three years ago. She had mm -hmm. a small part, but she was really good in it. I think uh, Sander is trying to do more serious roles, and whenever I see an actor start doing that, I'm going to give him a little bit more of my attention. Yeah. Now, one uh, of the Best Pictures uh, nominees that we didn't talk about that also has a Supporting Actor nominee, Christopher Waltz, is yeah. Inglorious Bastards. And... Uh, I thought it was an interesting piece because uh, it, it did get cartoonish in certain ways. Uh, the Nazi figures that, uh, you know, from Hitler to Goebbels uh, uh, and others uh, were, were caricatures. But it, it was an interesting um, uh, sequence, and, and I thought the script was interesting in most ways. And the role that was played by the uh, the Jewish girl who had... Uh, escaped death in the initial scene of the film, and then plays this critical part in blowing up her movie theater in Paris uh, in order to uh, kill off all these Nazis. Uh, it, it was far-fetched, but uh, once I suspended my disbelief, um, I, I found it to be a pretty uh, enjoyable film, and it did, I think, kind of capture that, that period. I, I agree. Uh pretty much with you and everything you say on it. Uh, I, I saw the film. Uh, I really think that Christoph Waltz should win the Best Supporting Actor. I think he is one of the easiest ones to guess as to who will win because he just walked away with the film. Yeah, he did. He really nailed that part and oh, uh, wow. ha had me fooled in many ways. Yes, and, and of course Tarantino has his own way of you know doing his own thing, and, and he's still trying to remake Pulp Fiction, and he's not going to do it because Pulp Fiction is his masterpiece, as far as I'm concerned. And this movie that we're talking about right now comes way down below that. Although I didn't dislike the film, yeah, but like mainly, it's you know he he changes, flips the story, and changes history, and all of that. And I'm thinking it's it's just a little t like you say, it's a little too cartoonish. But uh, and I always find uh, Brad Pitt to be sort of not quite up to speed in movies. I mean, he's not bad, but he's just never quite all there, except for the uh, movie Babel. He was really good in Babel. Mm -hmm. Not about three or four years ago. Yeah, I, I'm neutral on Brad Pitt. Uh, I, you know, I know that the ladies like him. There's a lot of eye candy there. Yeah. Um, and I think he is, he's quite competent. 
but uh, I, I don't give him the highest possible marks because, uh, I don't know, he, he's never, in my view, just uh, really become a character and uh, portrayed that in a way where you forget uh, who he is. He's sort of like Leonard, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. He's a handsome, cool guy. Chicks really like him, you know, and all this. Mm-hmm. And he's a, he's a competent actor, but he doesn't really just, uh, you know, hit a grand slam every time he gets in front of the camera, I guess you could say. Yeah. Well, Gary, anything else you want to add about the Oscars? We can't cover every category, every nominee, but uh, I think we've, uh, uh, we've traipsed through the waterfront a little bit. Yep, I think we have, and I think it's going to be an interesting evening uh, on Sunday. I, it's going to be interesting to see how the uh, Hurt Locker and Avatar come out. Yeah. All right, Gary, thank you very much. We'll talk again soon. That's Gary Chu, our film reviewer. Hope you enjoy the Oscars, or if you hear this afterward, hope you enjoyed them. Thanks for listening to this episode. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails